This episode of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast is supported by Logility, the platform for supply chain optimization using artificial intelligence and machine learning to automate planning, augment performance, and accelerate decision-making. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it offers to customers. But now, on to the podcast. Supply chains with locked-in plans and network designs are in for some nasty surprises. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. In today's supply chains, chaos and unpredictability have become, well, predictable. But the precise form they take is anyone's guess, which means that the best laid plans for building supply chain networks are provisional at best and useless at worst. So how can companies prepare for the next big supply chain disruption, whatever it might be? On this episode, I speak with Mark Balte, Senior Vice President of Product Innovation with Logility. He tells us where the weak spots are in supply chains today and sets forth five specific steps for building supply chain resilience. It's all about creating a structure that can quickly pivot as the plan meets reality. Here's my conversation with Mark Baltic. Mark Balti, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. I'm glad to join you today. Yeah, and thank you for being with me. So we're talking today about building supply chain resilience, which is a big issue with supply chains everywhere, given all the disruptions and the, and the nightmares that are happening around the world in global supply chains. I would like to start by just asking if you could help me understand just where are the weak spots in supply chains today? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And let me start first by just kind of framing uh, resiliency in the supply chain and the need. And, and I, I go back to the days of when I was a child and we had a game called Rock the Pool. And that's where we would all line up and jump off the diving board and everybody go one at a time and would try to get the water to lap over the edges of the pool. You know, mm -hmm. it took a lot of people to end up rocking that pool. And sometimes the person that created the event that caused the disruption may have been the most scrawniest kid, which was typically me. <laughs> that caused that last event that created the disruption. And now we could have created a disruption by rolling a huge boulder and throwing it in the pool, and that would have obviously accomplished our, our mission. But, Bob, the reason I say that is, is when I think of supply chain resiliency, I think a lot of organizations focus on that big major event and how do they build resiliency for that big major event, which, quite frankly, is very difficult to predict, like mm -hmm. a ship going sideways in the Suez Canal or the COVID event which obviously we want to build supply chains and have processes to respond to those events, but events are occurring in every day. And so to me, the resiliency is the ability of an organization to avoid and absorb those events through processes and, and, and a balanced approach. The other thing I would say is when we think about these events, obviously I mentioned the COVID, but we also see the demand shocks, the 
big swings in, in supply chain costs, labor shortages, port strikes. Yeah, you know, I can go on and on and on. But I also think there's a big element of an event that becomes disruptive is the nature of our consumers today. And they are digitally natured consumers. And they are responding a lot faster to what they want and what their needs are, what their orders are. In fact, my 87-year-old mother-in-law orders stuff on her cell phone device or smartphone. And I think the digital nature of the consumers is also causing events that eventually become disruptive. And so when I talk to our clients and talk to customers, I think of five steps of ways to help build a, a resilient supply chain. And the first step, and, and these are in no particular order, and, and you can work on one at a time, but the first one is to gain visibility of that multi-enterprise supply chain. That's sort of like a table-clearing kind of beginning. Without visibility, you have nothing, right? So it's, it really, that has to be step one. Exactly. And Bob, when I say multi-enterprise, I'm going into the supplier network. So you want to have visibility of your all of your distribution, your 3PLs, as well as all the tiers in your supplier network. I was reading an analyst report the other day, and they were saying that 51% of the supply chain disruptions are occurring in Tier 2 or further or lower in the supplier network. And so mm-hmm. imagine if I had that visibility, I as an organization would then be able to proactively manage my supply risk when I see these events, and I kind of distinguish an event versus a disruption. Multiple events may create a disruption, like my rock the pool scenario. But if I can see these events sooner, then I can course correct immediately. And by getting that visibility to the multi-enterprise and perhaps applying machine learning to some of that, being more predictive and prescriptive of the movement and what's occurring in all tiers of my supply chain, gives me the visibility the company needs to have a resilient supply chain. Or, That's a mm-hmm. good beginning, an essential beginning, but obviously it's not the whole story. There's four, there's four more <laughs> things coming up, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, yes. All right, let's, let's move to number two. Once we, let's, let's say we've gained visibility, which in and of itself is a huge challenge, and a lot of companies have not, especially Tier 2, Tier 3, and up. But let's say we're, we're approaching that or we're tackling that. What is the next big step? To me, the next big step is building – a practice and processes around agile network design. And today, organizations go through a network design process that takes months to to collate data and run it through some advanced algorithms. And they say, here's my network design. I want to plan and execute towards for the next 18 months. Well, as we know today, we we can rattle off all of the events and become disruptions. And companies need now to be able to be very agile in that network design process and the ability to quickly design a network that may may want to drive some of their plans or some of their execution based on these events. They may need to go more regionally oriented design. Or today, as we see, there's a big impetus on sustainable supply chains. Consumers are requiring a sustainable supply chain. So companies need to be nimble and be able to pivot and understand their current supply chain and be able to pivot that to perhaps a more sustainable supply chain or whatever business objectives they have. 
sounds like you're redefining the very notion of the word design, whereas the old concept of design is you design something and it's fixed. Then you build on that fixed design. Obviously, you can't do that this time because the, the networks themselves and the demands are changing all the time. So, therefore, the design must change also, right? Exactly. And so organizations need to build a, uh, out a more agile practice to look at these designs and optimize it so the planning and execution departments can leverage those that for their decision processes. Mm-hmm. And to me, that helps enforce and helps build out that resilient supply chain. So a, d- a design is a constant work in progress. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Even as you're moving mm-hmm. forward, building something, the plans are changing all the time. <laughs> Boy, that sounds like a, a huge challenge. All right, so that's number two. Give me number three. And the third area is, is, is similar to network design. Is that I, I don't see it as a kind of a practice that's integrated as far as the, the company's supply chain. It's really a proactive risk assessment proactively perform risk assessments. And many times I'm seeing out there that a lot of disruptions are occurring because they were not proactively looking for risk within their supply chain. And that may fall into, I have a key raw material that's single source, fall into lanes that have a lot of activity occurring across them. And so proactively looking at my supply chain and how I'm moving material through the supply chain and who my suppliers and my 3PLs are and identify risk points and then begin putting in practice to mitigate that. So being proactive to, to what's going on will help mm-hmm. you build that resiliency. And there's a, there's a measure I hear kind of becoming more standard in the industry is what's my total time to survive when a, a disruption occurs and what's my total time to recover. And being I able see. to measure that and look at that will help identify where you potentially have risk in your supply chain. And it may be in the places that you don't think are risky. But the trick here is you say proactive risk assessment, even as you can't be positive or even know at all the nature of the next disruption. So you're exactly. assessing a risk against not knowing what's going to actually happen. So take us to the fourth area. A fourth area is building buffers, inventory buffers across the supply chain. And people have been doing that for years. Most clients are still rather unsophisticated in how they're building buffers across the supply chain. Number one, they're looking within their enterprise. The second piece is they're looking at buffering inventory, perhaps at one tier of their supply chain, maybe the distribution tier, and they're not considering a holistic plan that actually even goes back into the supplier of where should I strategically be building buffers, and it might be with my raw materials versus my finished goods. And, it, and how much buffer inventory should I have? And it should be looking at variability and demand and lead time to help determine that and correlate with the, the business strategies. And what I'm seeing out there today, because of the disruptions, is companies are just building huge inventory safety stocks, almost stockpiling them at the finished good level, and then you get a demand shift. And no bother. now you have too much inventory of the stuff you're not selling and not enough inventory of what your consumer now wants. And so mm. it's strategically figuring out where I should build the buffers that help me then, because if I have inventory stored strategically through the supply chain, I can pivot if I need to, to satisfy the demand shifts that we're seeing. Well, you say that companies have been doing that for years, and yet it has been widely observed in the last couple of years that the so-called just-in-time theory of minimizing inventories may have taken 
company's eyes off the ball in terms of the need to build inventory buffers, that inventories yes. have been gone down beyond reasonable levels. Do you believe that that's the case and we need to return to some some understanding of the need for buffers, even if it might cost a little bit more up front? I do, because if you're not meeting your customer service levels, then you're not going to meet your revenue projections, which is the financial goals of the, the top of the line for uh, our clients. And the other area, though, also, Bob, is is there's a need to develop a good collaborative partnership with your suppliers or your co-packers because you may be asking them to store more inventory. That leads to the question I wanted to ask you, and that is who holds the buffer stuff? I mean, one of the practices in past years has been vendor-managed inventory in which your upstream vendor is responsible for hanging on to that until the very last moment when you need it. Are we coming back to that concept of VMI or upstream buffer partners responsible for keeping it on their books instead of ours? Or does it need to be buffered all the way down, some internal, some external? Um, What's the balance there? Yeah, I see that there's a balance. I think we're getting back to some of the vendor-managed inventory. Some of it will be internal, some will be external. But it all comes into that collaborative relationship that you have with your partners. Mm -hmm. It has to be collaborative. It has to be, obviously, everybody meeting their financial goals, which may ask, an external partner to hold some inventory for you. But at the end of the day, they're going to sell more. You're going to buy more from them, they're going to sell more. (laughs) Yeah, but not dump the whole problem in their lap. You know, take it all because I don't want any of it on my books until I need it. And, of course, that jeopardizes the survival of your upstream partners, and therefore it's going to have an effect on you downstream at some point. That's right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So uh, number five. In the fifth area is around the planning process. Too many companies today are making planning decisions based on deterministic parameters. So the lead time when they go through their planning process is X number of days. The production throughput is going to be Y amount. My forecasted demand is going to be some other number. And we all know there's variability in demand. Whatever you're forecasting is either going to be wrong or lucky as I like to say. Mm -hmm. And when you look at moving, particularly when we talk about all these tiers in our supplier network and our co-packers and 3PLs and and these transportation shipments, we know that the lead times are going to fluctuate. And we also know that the throughput through the manufacturing facilities is going to fluctuate. And so these planning processes need to include that variability as part of the planning algorithms. What that gives companies then is the confidence that the plan they're going forward with is not just looking at a fixed forecast and a fixed lead time. Based on history, we know there's fluctuation in demand, so we can plan with that fluctuation in in place. And we know there's going to be fluctuation on the supply side with lead time and production plans, and so we can plan that way. And where I'm going with this is, we were talking about disruptions and events. I'm coining a new phrase of, I talked about the new digital consumers kind of being a disruptive event Mm -hmm. because they want things instantaneously. I think deterministic plans create a planning disruption. And if you could see me, you would see my fingers doing the uh, air quotes here Mm -hmm. because companies are creating these plans that they know they can't meet, right? They know that, they won't happen with some high confidence level. But if we can pivot the way we plan and can consider variability, then we have a highly likelihood 
that the plan we're going forth with in the company is one that we could meet. It's already considered some of the events like a longer lead time or production throughput is, is less than what we thought. But based on history, we know what that might be. And we know where the demand fluctuations might occur. This is interesting because we talk about how disruptions are so unpredictable and they seem to come out of the blue and they're beyond our control. You're saying here that these deterministic parameters can actually set up a company for disruptions. In effect, you create yeah. the atmosphere for disruption by failing to take into account the fluctuating need of, of your plan. Interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Six months later, you're you're going through the fire drill because uh, we thought this stuff was going to arrive today, but now we just realize it's going to be 10 days late. And what about all these customer orders that we were planning to fulfill based on the product we thought was going to come into them? How interesting then, I mean, that you can actually create a resilient organization without knowing the actual nature of what the disruptions are that you're protecting against in the future, that you're creating a kind of a risk-conscious atmosphere that can kind of account for just about anything comes down the pike if you're if you do this exactly. properly with these five steps, right? Mm-hmm. It helps you. It helps. It makes the supply chain more resilient. So when these yeah. events do occur, and I can have quicker visibility to it, or I have buffered inventory, or I'm, my planning process is better, or I'm able to have a more agile network design and I can pivot quicker, or I've already done a risk assessment, so I've already identified where risk might occur so it doesn't become a disruptive design. Mark, tell me a little bit about the role that Legility plays today in meeting the needs of its customers and covering some of these points that we just discussed. Legility has been around for approximately 50 years in the supply chain. We, we have focused on the supply chain space for those 50 years. And we have transformed over those years when business processes have changed and when technology has changed. So we have, so to speak, we have been resilient ourselves to the changes that have occurred in industry over the past 50 years. At the end of the day, as our goal is to drive value for our clients and allow them to meet their business objectives, top-line business objectives, by having a very efficient supply chain and meet their customers' order fulfillment service level goals as well. And we focus on the planning aspect of the supply chain as well as the uh, sourcing aspect, I've touched on that a little bit, and the execution side of the supply chain. So we're focusing on the end-to-end capabilities and needs. We recognize that there's a need for the visibility that I spoke about earlier, as well as a need for when we talk about the digital consumer, we can no longer predict what the demand might look like like just based on historical patterns. We have to include other types of data that might be causal in nature. It may include weather. They may include other types of demand streams. They may include other patterns that influence that forecast. And so we leverage those techniques as well. I spend a good bit of my time looking at new techniques and new types of data that we can bring together to help our customers drive a more efficient supply chain and obviously a resilient supply chain. I also think that as businesses today is there is a pivot point. I believe in the past, technology in some ways could not meet up with the business processes our clients wanted to perform or invoke. But today, I'm seeing where technology has leapfrogged the processes and that companies need to spend time and focus on how do they reimagine their processes and leverage Mm. I believe a platform, 
that supports all those end-to-end supply chain processes. So we can break down, there's still a lot of silos out there with companies, and how can they break down those silos, both from an organizational standpoint and from an access to data standpoint, and including their third-party partners to drive efficiencies in their supply chain. And end of the day, build a resilient supply chain. Yeah, when it comes to implementation, you have to be concerned as much with business process change as with the technological part of it as well, do you not? Yeah, exactly, 100%. 100%. There's a lot of business process change, and there's some change management that occurs. Hey, uh, Mark Balti of Legility, I want to thank you so much once again for your insights and observations on these steps to building supply chain resiliency, as well as talking a little bit about where Legility is playing and what, what you guys are doing these days as well. Thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, thank you, Bob. I really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to doing it again another time. That was my conversation with Mark Balti of Logility, talking about how to build supply chain resilience. We thank Logility for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.